Well, good morning. My name is David Wolin. I'm one of the elders here at New Covenant, part of the preaching team. And this morning, we're continuing our series in Acts, where we're seeing the risen and now ascended Jesus continuing to work, building his church through the Holy Spirit. And the pace of the growth of the church has been astonishing. Even by modern day standards, in Acts chapter 4, where our text begins today, the church has already reached something like a megachurch size. There are thousands of believers, and the church is only weeks old or maybe a few months at most, and all of this growth has been happening in a contested space. There is massive opposition emerging, and it might seem like it's human opposition on the surface But there is also a spiritual battle that's raging. God is using both of those dimensions to test and refine and to purify his church. Now, one of the hallmarks of the early church was their unity, their fellowship, their their visible oneness in heart and in mind. And as we get started today, I want to set the stage for our text by thinking about this theme of unity a little bit. Unity is something very appealing to us as human beings, isn't it? I think it's safe to say that all people in all places long for unity. The roots of those longings are planted way back in the dawn of human history, and they continue strong today. But true unity is elusive. It's always just beyond our grasp although sometimes we do catch a glimpse of something like it, and when we do, we're inspired. How many of us recently discovered that yellow and blue goes with every outfit? Yeah? We've seen the unity of the people of Ukraine as outsiders, and we've seen their courage and their strength that came from that, something nobody thought possible, and that unity is contagious to those on the outside. It makes us want to stand with them. But even unity forged in war is imperfect because no war lasts forever and peace will return. And when it does, the afterglow of that unity will begin to fade. It always does because fragmentation and division is the natural state of humanity in a fallen world. And it's inevitable because human beings are sinful, Our souls curve in on themselves. Our bent is towards selfishness and self-serving, which always dissolves unity in the end, every time. And yet, humanity has this insatiable hunger for unity. We want it. Why is that? Well, I want to suggest to you today that it's because ultimate reality With a capital U and a capital R, the fundamental life force of this universe is the tripersonal God revealed in the Bible, Father, Son, and Spirit. Three persons eternally sharing one essence, one God, a holy community in perfect unity that always has been and always will be. And this God created human beings in his image. You are an image bearer of this God. 
All human beings are image bearers, and nothing else in creation shares that distinction. And that's why deep down, our souls long for fellowship, for community, for unified togetherness with other people. God imprinted that desire on our souls as a reflection of himself, and it's beautiful to people because God is beautiful in all of his perfections. But as we're going to explore today, this kind of unity among human beings can really only ever exist truly when two conditions are met. And the first is that God's presence is among them, and the second is that they have fellowship with him. And those two things have to go together if unity, true unity, is to be the result, God's presence and fellowship with him. And that's why at the fall, when sin first entered the world, the unity of humanity was shattered because the relationship with God, the fellowship with God was broken and subsequently God separated people from his presence. And since then, every type of unity the world has ever aspired to on its own from Babel onward, is merely an imitation of the original, but it's not the real thing. That is not until the presence of God descended again. This happened in the Old Testament. God gathered a people around himself, and his presence was in their midst, a pillar of cloud by day and a flame by night, then the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle, the temple. In Jerusalem, God's holy presence throughout their history in their midst. But all of this was just a foreshadowing of what was still yet to come. And throughout their history, the unity of Israel was constantly breaking apart and fragmenting. Even the nation itself split. It was a downward cycle of rebellion and sin followed by repentance and renewal, but then more rebellion and sin And on and on it went until God finally took on human flesh and the very presence of God walked among us. And in him everything foreshadowed in and through Israel was fulfilled. And on the cross Christ totally and fully atoned for the sins of his people, for those who would repent and believe. And all of this had to happen before Acts 2 was possible. That moment could not have come unless Christ had done what he had done to make his people holy. Only then could God's presence come again, not just to be among his people, but to fill them. And people, the people of God became the new temple, God's dwelling place. And that's why in Acts chapter 4, the world was seeing a kind of unity and fellowship that resonated so deeply. They were made for this. And it was being lived out in front of them in real life. What was happening was holy. And nothing like it had been seen since Genesis 3. And I think unless we have this in our minds, the link between fellowship and unity and the presence, the holy presence of God among his people, what we're about to read is likely either to confuse us or we're likely to misinterpret what we're going to read. So please open your Bibles now to Acts chapter 4. We'll be starting in verse 32. Now, if you were here last week, you might remember that Pastor Dan preached about the threats to the early church which were coming from the outside in those early days. It was primarily targeted on the two leaders that had emerged, Peter and John. And the threat was 
the threats of the Jewish leaders, intimidation, imprisonment, to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, but it didn't work. And so when the Jewish authorities released them, they returned to the church, and the church all together, all the believers, prayed, and they asked God, this is verse 29, to grant them boldness to speak his word. And verse 31, which is where we ended last week, tells us that when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to preach, to speak the word of God boldly. So God immediately had answered their prayer. So what was the result of that? Let's pick it up in verse 32. Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. And no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them. Because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. So the visible unity of the early church was undeniably real. As the saying goes, put your money where your mouth is, right? Well, the early church did that. And their extraordinary generosity wasn't forced or coerced. It was voluntary and sacrificial and joyful and prompted by a radical shift in minds and hearts on an individual basis and all brought about by the work of the Holy Spirit who is bringing them into this kind of fellowship. But here's something I think really interesting. The Greek word for fellowship, you might have heard this before, is koinonia, koinonia. And the root of that word is koine, which means common. So in this passage, the essence of their koinonia is that they were holding all things in koine, right? They were holding all things in common. So Christian fellowship and generosity is intrinsically linked. Do you see that? It didn't mean that everybody had literally given up all the ownership of all their possessions as though they had entered some sort of a commune. No, every person still possessed their possessions, but instead they had a, a mindset of such joyful generosity that they didn't regard the things that they owned as being their own. They recognized that what they had really belonged to God. And when you realize that, the only question you can ask then is, God, what do you want me to do with what you've entrusted to me? So Christian fellowship and generosity are linked and they were fused together into the very foundation of the early church and it was beautiful and it was compelling. And those on the outside were looking in and going, wow, that's awesome. I want to live like that. That's beautiful. I want in. But here's the thing. There's only one way into God's beautiful covenant community, and that is through the cross of Christ, through faith and repentance in him, and consequently the filling of the Holy Spirit, and anything less than that would be a forgery of fellowship. And as we're about to see, it would be a threat to the fellowship of the whole body. 
and of the work that God was doing among them all, a poisoning of the well, so to speak. So let's continue and pick up chapter 5 with the, with the story of Ananias and Sapphira, starting in verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and a great fear came on all who heard. The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the land for this price? Yes, she said, for that price. Then Peter said to her, why did you agree? to test the spirit of the Lord. Look, the feet who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Instantly, she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. This is not an easy passage. I think it's fair to say that for many, this is a very baffling section of Scripture. So I'd like to help us gain some understanding, to understand this story better by asking three questions and then answering them from the text. And I'll give you these questions now. First, what was the nature of Ananias and Sapphira's sin? What was the nature of their sin? Second, what was at stake? And then third, what was the outcome? Now, as we start, I'm going to speak briefly to the third question because it helps, really helps, to frame the first. But then later on, we'll explore more of the outcomes of the events more fully. So let's start with the last line that we read. Great fear came upon the whole church and on all who heard these things. The fear of God. And this was a very good thing. The Proverbs say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. That's Proverbs 9.10. And while the Bible tells us that perfect love casts out fear, Jesus was very clear with his disciples about the importance of fearing God. Jesus said in Matthew 10, There is nothing covered that won't be uncovered, and nothing hidden that won't be made known. He said, Don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, there's more than one kind of fear. And the kind of fear that perfect love casts out is not the fear of God. 
You can fear God in Christ without being afraid of God, with having the confidence to boldly stand before his throne because of Christ. And so among God's people, there should always be a holy fear of God, a trembling awe before his presence. And to be fully transparent with you, these past couple of weeks for me, preparing to preach this message today, my heart has trembled to preach this passage more than I think any passage I've ever preached. And I hope that as you hear this story from God's word, your heart trembles too. Not because you or any in person in this room with hidden sin in your life should expect to be struck dead any second. Some things in Acts are prescriptive for the church today, but others are descriptive of what happened in those early days. And I do think this passage is descriptive because we don't continue to see this pattern appearing in the early church where people are falling over dead every time they're confronted with their sin. But that does not mean this story is irrelevant for us. On the contrary, it is tremendous relevance. We are meant to look at the exposed sin of Ananias and Sapphira and take heed, because the early church certainly did. And it was so important that the Holy Spirit preserved this for us in the Bible. So what was the nature of their sin? Well, it was complicated and messy. Sin often is. On the surface, there's certainly some sort of greediness in play, but on the other hand, the property was theirs to begin with, and no one was pressuring them to give it. So it wasn't like they wanted something that they didn't already have monetarily. The true heart of giving is generosity, but the way that Ananias and Sapphira made their gift, it looks a little bit like they're trying to buy something or get something and yet, in the process, they were greedy to keep some of the money back for themselves. So what did they stand to gain by appearing to give all of it? Perhaps the honor and esteem they'd seen bestowed on people like Barnabas? Maybe they had another end game? We don't know. But obviously, whatever it was, they wrapped the whole thing in one big lie. And whatever else their motives may have, been, may have been, and we're not told those details. What's beneath the surface of this, I think, is even more important. And you can see it if you read the text closely. First, their actions were very intentional. Peter asked Ananias why he had planned this thing in his heart. So it was premeditated, deliberate, on purpose, not accidental or a sudden moment of weakness. It was intentional. And second, it was conspiratorial. He didn't do it alone. The decision to deceive the church or to try to deceive it involved two people who discussed it ahead of time between themselves, a husband and wife who both knew what the plan was going into it. But so far, we haven't even touched on the most shocking aspect of this, and that was that it was satanic, literally. The Holy Spirit revealed to Peter not just what the hidden sin was, but the fact that it had come about by Satan filling the heart of Ananias. Brothers and sisters, please hear this. We deceive ourselves if we think that sin can truly be hidden and stay hidden. It can't. It will not stay hidden. 
What did Jesus say? There is nothing covered that won't be uncovered and nothing hidden that won't be made known. God knows. And so do the spiritual forces described in Ephesians 6. We preached through that book last year. And it was there that we learned about the spiritual armor, like the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. And without all of these things in place, we're vulnerable to the devil's attacks. And whether sin is hidden in the sense that it's sin unconfessed, maybe because of shame, or whether it's hidden sin in the sense that it's the unrepentance of a cold heart who just wants to keep doing whatever it is. In any case, hidden sin makes you vulnerable to spiritual darkness and attack. And the text doesn't tell us whether Ananias and Sapphira were truly believers, but we do know that they were vulnerable and that Satan filled the heart of Ananias to do this. And this is worthy of note. The last time that Satan showed up, made an appearance in the Bible, wasn't that long before. It was when Judas betrayed Christ. John 13 tells us that Satan entered into Judas at the Last Supper, and then he immediately stood up and left to go betray the Lord. There is a spiritual battle then and now that we can't see. It is real. Satan entered Judas to kill the Messiah, but that was part of God's sovereign plan. Satan filled the heart of Ananias in an attempt to wound or kill the early church, but that was not part of God's sovereign plan, and God stopped the devil right in his tracks. So this was satanic. And lastly, the root of the sin itself was that Ananias and Sapphira were lying, as Peter said, not to people, but to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And this, I think, is the key to our understanding and applying the story of Ananias and Sapphira. It's the holiness of God. And there's so much wrapped up in that. We could do a whole topical series on the holiness of God and barely scratch the surface. But for today, holiness, holy, means to be set apart. When God makes his people holy, he sets them apart from the world to reflect him. But God in the essence of his being, is holy in that he is set apart and unique from everything else. God, in his being, is the reference point that defines everything else. So goodness, beauty, righteousness, justice, truth, as well as all the things that deviate from the standard of who he is, that's what makes sin, sin, and evil, evil, all that stands in opposition to who he is, And so God's holiness has the same relationship with sin that light does with darkness. One annihilates the other. Light invades darkness. God's wrath and his judgment are contingent attributes that become visible in the presence of evil and sin. But they're also connected to his goodness because if God did not judge sin, he would cease to be good. He would cease to be just He would cease to be holy. He would cease to be God. And of course, that's impossible. But sometimes we see the judgment of God in Scripture and we're shocked by it. I was listening to a podcast yesterday with Jackie Hill Perry and her husband Preston, and they made a great point. One of the reasons that God's sudden judgment often takes us by surprise in Scripture is because of how infrequently we see it. And that's because most of the time, God shows 
incredible patience and forbearance. He withholds the just judgment sin deserves, deserves most of the time. Why? Why does God do that? It's because God is giving time for repentance. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. But in the end, hear this, all sin will be judged in the end. And in his wisdom, though, God sometimes brings that just judgment to sin right on the spot. So there's quite a few examples in Scripture of this, just a few. Sodom and Gomorrah, God's very decisive judgment on incredible evil. And connected to that story, wife's lot, who, wife, Lot's wife, who turned around and looked back against God's direct instruction, she lost her life on the spot. Or a man named Uzzah, who in the time of King David just reached out his hand to steady the Ark of the Covenant. It was teetering. It was on, an, uh, on a cart being transported by oxen. One of the oxen fell, and it was about to fall, and he reached up his hand, and he touched it, and God knew what was in his heart, and he was struck dead on the spot. This sinful man had reached out his hand to presumptuously touch the place of God's holy presence, and God's judgment fell on him. This kind of judgment makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? It's because our frame of reference for the severity of sin what makes, is what the, looks normal in the world around us, maybe what looks normal within the church. But if your frame of reference is the perfection of God's holiness, then what ought to amaze us is how often God defers judgment because really every sin deserves his wrath. And if he does bring it, it's not unjust. Now in Acts... The presence of God is not in the ark anymore. And it's not in the temple behind the veil. The presence of God has come and filled his people. They have been made holy through the cross work of Christ. They've been filled with the Spirit. His presence has united them with a unity and a fellowship now visible in their generosity. And Ananias and Sapphira, at the devil's prompting, were attempting to trespass into that holy place. And their actions were a direct affront to the holiness of God and a satanic attempt to sabotage the early church. This was the nature of their sin. So let's move on to the second question. What was at stake? Well, the church was in its infancy, its most formative stage of growth. Remember in Acts 1.8, Jesus had commanded his disciples and followers to, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. But here in Acts chapter 5, they're still at the starting gate. They're still in Jerusalem. The church has not yet replicated. Believers, yes, believers have multiplied, but there is still only one local body of Christ in the whole world. And its purity matters. The purity of every local body matters to this day, but this one, this one was the original. Now, what happens to a copy if the original has a fatal flaw? 
The flaw gets replicated over and over again, right? Like genetic code passed down through DNA. Well, in the same way, the DNA of a church works itself out in its culture and will replicate itself into other churches, especially through church planting, which is precisely what the early church was called by God to begin doing. Thinking of a more modern-day example, this calls to mind, to me, the tragic events documented in the recent and widely listened to podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. This is a tragic, modern-day example of what it looks like when blatant sin is tolerated and hidden and covered up complicitly within the church, and then it's justified by growth in numbers and success in planting churches. The history of the Mars Hill Church as it unfolded with 15 multi-site locations and over 400 church plants turned out to be toxic and abusive, and that culture was replicated. And in the end, the whole thing just came crashing down, and thousands and thousands of people, Christians and non-Christians, were hurt, and the reputation of Christ was tarnished. But the story of Mars Hill and that of Ananias and Sapphira, it has some differences. But I just want to draw your attention to this similarity. They show us how greatly the purity of the church matters and how destructive is the power of sin that remains hidden and unrepentant. And lest we get prideful, but for the grace of God go we also. We are not unvulnerable to this. The church is a living testimony to the character of a holy God. And the same apostle who spoke with Ananias and Sapphira that day would later write to the many churches that had been planted subsequently. And he wrote this saying, As the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence, in reverence. Church, any time that we treat God or speak of God in a way that's flippant or irreverent or without the respect and honor due his name, we're in error. But God shows us so much patience in this because at some level, I think we're all guilty of this with far greater frequency than we realize. But God is so gracious to remind us in stories like this of his holiness that put the fear of God back into our hearts and with it a desire to show him the respect and the awe-filled worship he deserves. And so what was the outcome? Third question, what was the outcome? Earlier we saw that a great fear came upon the church and that all, and all who heard about what had happened, that was the immediate outcome, the first domino, and that set in motion more things. So let's read about it now in the last section here this morning, verses 12 through 16. It's because of this, many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, but the people spoke well of them. Believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, multitudes of both men and women and as a result, they would carry the sick out into the streets and lay them on cots and mats so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. In addition, a multitude came together from the towns surrounding Jerusalem, 
bringing the sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. And so with every opposition endured and withstood, the church's witness only gets bolder. The Holy Spirit's power only looms larger in their midst, and the number of new believers continues to multiply increasingly. And the church grows, both men and women. The sick are being healed with greater and greater miracles. And then another detail here, the demonic realm is in full retreat now. Those who were tormented by unclean spirits were coming in mass and being healed. And so God had preserved the purity of his church and he had vindicated his holiness among them. So the question for us today is what do we do with this? How do we apply this in our own lives and in our local body? I expect at this point the Holy Spirit may well have already made an application to your heart. I hope that you've been filled with a reverent awe for the holiness of God and the realization that the church belongs to him. It was, it was God who was acting in that story with Ananias and Sapphira, not Peter. And this church, New Covenant Bible Church, belongs to Jesus Christ. And the unity of this church matters, but not for its own sake. Unity is a derivative of God's presence and our fellowship with him. So the question is really individual. Is there anything hindering your fellowship with God and with those around you? And I'm just going to get really direct. Do you have unrepentant sin in your life? I urge you to heed the conviction in your heart, listen to the Spirit, and turn from it. I'm going to read some words from Ephesians 5, and I want you just to listen. The Holy Spirit is speaking. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Everything exposed by the light is made visible. For what makes everything visible is light. Therefore, it is said, Get up, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. But not all, not all hidden sin is unrepentant. It's very common for Christians who do belong to Jesus to struggle with hidden sin buried deep in their inner being. Sometimes we battle with sin, but we're stuck in it. And it's not accurate to call it unrepentance. Our conversation with God is continual. We're pleading with him for rescue. We're trying to resist, but we continue to fail. And here's the thing. No other believer knows about your struggle. 
And so you cower back in shame at the thought of bringing the reality of your struggle into the light. You're fearful of what could happen if you did, fearful of the judgment or rejection of others. But what if you're wrong? What if you're wrong about that? What if James 5.16 is right? Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. But right now you're afraid and you're hiding. Can I tell you something? Those fears, and I know they're overwhelming, like a, like a wall you can't climb or a prison cell you can't break out of, those fears are like shadows in the dark with no substance. The light will not hurt you. But the darkness will. Lingering in the shadows longer and longer will hurt you. And so this is God's call to all of us, for none of us are without sin. This isn't just for a few of us. It's for all of us. Walking with Jesus isn't a burden. It's true freedom, true joy, true life. Don't you long for that? It's a continual pattern in the Christian life, like breathing out and breathing in, repentance and confession and enjoying the freedom in Christ that we're meant to live in. Now, right now I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up and to help us respond to this through a hymn. And as they're coming up, I want to invite you right now to resolve in your heart that you're going to respond today to whatever the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you. Do you need to confess hidden sin in your life to another believer? Step into the light. Have you been convicted of a hard, unrepentant heart? Step into the light. Do you want to put your faith in Christ? Step into the light. I'll repeat these words again from Ephesians 5. Get up, sleeper, and rise up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you.